Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 511, the criminal behavior analysis of the forgotten West Memphis 3 crime scene. As expected, this episode generated a lot of discussion. Right, there's been tons of conversation on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page, on our main page, on Twitter, emails. I've seen that a lot of people have a ton of questions and a lot of comments, some criticism. So I think we should go ahead and get started. All right, let's do it. Okay, Mike, before you start, there's there's something that I want to address, and it's kind of going way off script for the way that I normally handle things like this on the podcast. So, and the issue is that at this point in the investigation, there's not been much investigation. You haven't heard me talk about many suspects other than the couple that were the early leads. So a lot of people are asking me, like, have you ruled this person out? Or is this person a suspect? Or why did you rule this person out? But the reality is I haven't ruled anybody out. I'm just not to that point in the investigation to really dig deeply into each suspect. And for me, it's more about at this point and leading up to here, trying to figure out the victimology, figure out the crime scene, figure out the medical evidence to get a better idea of who should be a suspect. And that's kind of where we were starting with uh, the criminal behavior analysis episode 511 that we just did. But there's something that, that just needs to be addressed and Again, this this is probably, it, it's very different from anything that I've ever done before, uh, especially at this phase of the game, and I'm going to take a pretty strong stance on it, and I normally don't. I mean, I've got, people throw around accusing the, you know, the, the bias word and that a lot, but really, if you listen to me, uh, you know, I, I try to present both facts, I'll give you my opinion, and I want you to make up your own. I really don't have any bias, I try to be as neutral as possible, but in today's day and age on the internet, disagreeing with someone must be because of bias. So. Uh, there's already some people that are a little irritated, and I think this might upset some people more, but I'm going to do this anyway. I want to talk for just a brief moment about a man named David Jacoby. Now, for those of you who are new to the case, you may not even know who David Jacoby is. For all of those of you who have seen the documentaries, you know who he is, but probably don't know much about him. And then there are the people that have dug deeper into the case and know a little bit more and that are in groups. So there's all different levels here. Well, what I want you to know is that J David Jacoby is someone who I've been investigating thoroughly for several months. There's a lot happening behind the scenes that you're not hearing about. I've met David. I have interviewed David. We have a full interview already recorded with him. I probably spent 
I don't know, six to eight hours personally with David. On top of that, I've done a lot of background checking with him. I've talked to witnesses that know him that he doesn't even realize I've done. And I've even spoken to the original defense investigators from the appeals from back in like 2005 till 2011 when the West Memphis Three were released. The actual investigators are doing that investigation that spoke with David back then uh, and the team that included John Douglas and all those guys. So I've thoroughly researched and vetted Mr. David Jacoby. And what I want to say here publicly now, and we're going to get into all this way down the road. So if you're somebody that doesn't really know who he is, don't worry about it. We'll get to it later. But for those of you that do, I I want to publicly clearly state right here, right now, in my opinion, there is zero question David Jacoby had absolutely nothing to do with these murders, and he doesn't know who did. He He has done everything in his power, everything he could possibly do for the last 10 years to try to help find the truth. And and he has opened himself up and exposed himself in doing that. And in return, nothing has happened but for him to be, I'm sorry for the language, he's just been shit on ever since then. And I think that a lot of times that, and and I'm seeing it on our fan page, but just in the internet in general because of some of the documentaries, people have no problem talking about people and, and, and accusing people of things publicly and forget about the fact that these are real people. They are real human beings. And, and, and I want to say, and again, some people may disagree with me, and, and I'm going to say, and I don't usually say this, I don't care. I feel that strongly about this, that David Jacoby is one of the kindest, most genuine people that I've ever met, period, not just on this case or in any other case. I mean, there, I have never done background checks on anyone that I've ever investigated and found Nothing. Could not get one single person to say a negative word about this man or even hint that maybe he's got some sort of a violent past because he doesn't. He had seven children of his own. He has grandchildren. He's been a little league coach for years. Then his life was greatly affected by people publicly accusing him of these child murders that he absolutely had nothing to do with. So moving forward, And this may cause a mass exodus, and if that's the case, then that's all right. I have have talked to the admins on the Truth and Justice podcast fans page, and I have asked them, and they have respectfully agreed to what I just said. David Jacoby will not be discussed as a suspect on that page, because he is not. That is a podcast fan page. That is not a West Memphis 3 page. It is a Truth and Justice fan page. And the Truth and Justice podcast has ruled David Jacoby out as a suspect, and I personally. I'm sick and tired of watching what has happened to this poor, kind man who has never done anything other than try to help find those babies on that day and then later try to help investigators get to the truth. So anyone that really thinks that David Jacoby is a suspect, I'm going to tell you, you need to have that conversation somewhere besides on the Truth and Justice pages, because if you do, you will be deleted and blocked and banned because there's been enough damage done to the people surrounding this case because of baseless public accusations. And again, you can think I'm wrong all you want, and that's fine. And if that causes you to leave, I'm upset. I love every one of you guys that are that are listening and that are working through this with us. But I will not let any more negativity come to that man through our hand and through our podcast pages. So that's it. I guess I'll stop rambling on there. And sorry for kind of hijacking your... Hey, that's all right, Bob. Your first segment there. But uh, needed to be said, I think rant over 
So you can go ahead and get to whatever you have there in those pages. All right, before I get into the questions, I did want to ask, uh, as far as the medical evidence goes in the case, I know it's an ongoing process, but did you find out any more information on that? Yeah, like you, you hit the nail on the head there. It is an ongoing process because there's a ton of information. To really do this right, there's a ton of information to research. And what we're talking about, I assume, is last week in the follow-up, we were talking about comparing Spitz's findings to Peretti's and Sternum's. There's, there's more doctors. It's not Sternum. I always get that wrong. Sterner. And, and there's, there's other doctors' testimonies. And no, I'm not done, uh, but I'm continuing to work. But we keep having to stop to research and study and write and record and edit each week's podcast. But I, I have found some information. One thing that I, I think I can say with some degree of certainty at this point is that Dr. Warner Spitz, I do not believe in any, and I've said it before, but really after digging in, was you know, on the take, so to speak. Like Some people may believe that he's wrong, and that's okay, but what I've done is so I actually got Werner Spitz's book, his textbook, the one that's used by all the forensic pathologists in the world. And I've been comparing everything that he said on the stand to his old textbooks. Because what I'm looking for is, is he deviating from what he's always taught? Because to me, that's the indicator that he's lying for some, you know, so if, so if his book says and he teaches and he's practiced for all these years that X equals Y. And then he gets on the stand and says X equals Z, then of course that's a big problem. But that isn't the case. Everything he's saying on the stand is backed up by his textbook and the chapters that he wrote and the chapters that other people have written. So now we're down to one's wrong and one's right, in my opinion. I don't think we have anything, I don't think he's trying to hide anything. And if, and if anybody is being dishonest, I'll just say this I don't think Warner Spitz was being dishonest. If anybody was, it wasn't him. That being said, he could be wrong. And, and the one thing that I want to address that I have spent quite a bit of time on, and I think it should give us some answers, is the, the post-mortem versus perimortem wounds. So, so wounds that happened when the victim was alive compared to after death. The telltale black and white way to tell is, is there hemorrhaging at the wound site? You know, so meaning if I cut myself and my heart's still beating, it pumps blood to the cut, there's hemorrhaging there. Or if I, if I, if I say get hit, and it's a bruise because a bruising is actually just damage to uh, the capillaries, the cells, excuse me, not the cells, but the blood vessels underneath the skin, just like a cut, but they're just smaller. And then the, when the blood rushes to those wounds, it discolors the area and causes a bruise. So if you're seeing a bruise or you're seeing hemorrhaging, then that means in, in the black and white world, that happened before death. And if you have a cut with no hemorrhaging and no blood, no bleeding, clearly that happened in the black and white world post-mortem. Well, I think that what's happening here is you just have some doctors that live in the black and white world of one means one and two means two, uh, where Spitz, and again, consistently through his teachings in his book, digs deeper into that. Uh, and so this is the best way that I can describe it to you. So, so the issue of the head wounds, there's a big question of were the boys hit over the head and were they unconscious? Was there blunt force trauma? Spitz says, uh, now, when they ask if where the boys were unconscious, he says he has no way of knowing that, but he doesn't see any injuries on the boys that would render them unconscious, which was news to me because according to Ferretti's report, uh, there was blunt force trauma to the head and brain hemorrhaging. Well, so, but what Spitz is saying is there is some hemorrhaging on the brain underneath those skull fractures, but it's not enough. And I didn't know what that meant. He's saying it's not enough blood. That injury should have the entire brain cavity filled with blood, and it's not. There's a tiny little bit of hemorrhaging there. 
And that's why in his testimony, for any of you uh, that went on our website and actually have read it, uh, you'll see him saying, well, that could have happened during death, like, you know, like as they're being drowned with their heads underwater, maybe their head hits a rock or a tree stump or something and hit it, you know, as they were dying. And what he's saying is there's just not enough blood hemorrhage in that wound. And the reason for it in his book is something called gravity shifting. And when I read it, it makes perfect sense to me. And and what it is, is so most of you that are familiar with this podcast or anybody that deals with any kind of postmortem examination is aware of lividity, which lividity is when your body expires, when you die, the blood in your body will actually, without any blood pressure, will pool up to the lowest point of your body. And it will shift for a period anywhere between 6 and 12 hours, uh, respectively, depending on time, temperature, environmental conditions. And then at some point, it will fix, where it basically coagulates and stays right there. And that's, you know, in our season one case, that's how we were able to tell that the body of Heyman Lee had been moved because uh, she had frontal, full frontal fixed lividity, which meant the blood had pooled along the entire front of her body and, and stayed there, which takes, again, between, you know, 6 to 12 hours. But then she was found buried on her side, but the lividity was still fixed in the front. So anyway, that's a different case, but that's what proved the fact that she had been laid somewhere for hours after death before she was moved. Anyway, the, way, the reason that happens is gravity. When your, blo- when your blood begins to shift and pool in your body, it goes with gravity. That's why it goes to the lowest point. Well, if you have a wound, what, what, what Spitz describes in his book is if you have, say, an artery, after death, and you cut it. So you take a knife and slice somebody across their arm, and there's no blood pressure, it's not going to bleed. But if then, as my dead body is laid out, and my arm, where the injury is, where the cut is, is lower than my heart, if that's one of the lower points with as far as gravity is concerned, blood will pool because of gravity, not because of a heartbeat, to that wound location, and if there's an open artery there or an open blood vessel of some kind, the blood will come out of it, which will present as hemorrhaging, because just based on the gravity shifting the blood down to where the open wound was. And the best way that I had it described to me was if you think about uh, your a garden hose, and and you have the water onto your garden hose, and you you cut the end off. You have like a cap on the end. You cut the end of it off, and there's blood just pouring out of it, pouring out of it, pouring out of it. That would be like an open wound when your heart's still beating. But then if you shut the hose off and you hold the hose up, the water's going to stop coming out of the end. But if you drop the hose, there's not going to be as much, but there'll still be some water that was still left in the vessel as it settled because of gravity that's going to come out of the end of the hose. That's what gravity shifting is. And that's what spits. Now, I'm not saying he's right or wrong, but that's what he's saying when he's saying, there's not enough hemorrhage here to indicate that this is perimortem. There should be more, and that's an indicator to me that it's postmortem is because of gravity shifting. Remember, the boys are in the water, which means they're probably rolling and turning and stuff, so that, 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 that gravity is going to be shifting in different directions over the period of time that they're in the water. Uh, and so that's what he's saying accounts for a lot of the, the, the minor hemorrhaging that's, as he puts it, not enough hemorrhaging to be perimortem wounds and why he's calling them postmortem wounds. And then a lot of it, too, as I'm reading further, it's like, so say, like the mouth around Stevie Branch. You know, it's like there's one wound here where you can see that there's some hemorrhage to it. And he's saying, well, but look, 
every single other wound around it has shows no hammers, just that one does. So we'd assume that's part of the same attack post mortem. And so it happened after he was after he was dead from from animal predation. And there's there's other things he gets into. The he talks about the skull fractures on Michael Moore's head. He describes him as being some kind of a bite because you can see the cut on the scalp. You can see the fractures on the top of the skull, but once the t- skull cap was removed and you look from underneath, the only thing that punctured through to the other side was what he described as looks like two tooth marks. So on the bottom half of the bone, all that came through were those two kind of pointed areas, what he called tooth marks, which he keeps talking about a dog, uh, but uh, Mike and I have done quite a bit of research on the alligator snapping turtle in the last week, and look one of them up. They've got two big, you know, when their mouth is opened, it would make the shape of an oval with a big point at the each end of it, which is, I haven't seen the pictures, but it's like basically what Spitz is describing uh, with a skull fracture with two points at the other end. And uh, speaking of the alligator snapping turtle, just as, just as we promised to keep following up on that episode as we learn more, um, and I know you're looking at me, Mike, like you're staring at your list of questions we haven't even gotten to yet, but we'll get there. No worries, Bob. All right. But the, so the alligator snapping turtle, I had a few people that were doing some research on them and were trying to decide if they would be in that area or wouldn't be. Well, you know, there's, there's a couple different breeds of uh, or species of snapping turtle. There's what they call the common snapper and then the alligator snapping turtle, uh, which is the much bigger one, but actually much more docile breed of snapping turtle. Um, because, you know, <laughs> one thing that I learned uh, uh, shortly before my wedding, uh, the day before my wedding day, is that the common snapping turtle jumps. Uh, I tried, I had one that was walking across my dad's driveway and I got out and tried to lean down to pick it up and move it over and it jumped straight up in the air and almost chomped my lip. So look up <laughs> YouTube snapping turtles jumping. It's, it's scary as hell. <laughs> Sorry, I'm a little getting a little off topic. I'm running, rambling on. But anyway, the alligator snapping turtle is only, only lives in the south, kind of the southeast. And as someone had pointed out to me, they're, they're typically way that they hunt is that they just lay on the bottom, camouflage, and leave their mouth open. And they got this little, like, worm thing on their tongue that wiggles around, and then fish think it's a worm, and they swim into their mouth, and they chomp them and eat them. Is that what that was? I thought it was it had extra sensitive nerves in it. No, they said that it's actually like bait. Was, really? Yeah. L- literally, literally the, the sight of it is what attracts mm-hmm. the It wiggles like a worm. Fish. So anyway, uh, a listener had pointed out that that's how they hunt, so they wouldn't have been involved in the animal predation. But then what we also found is that alligator snapping turtles, in remember that one video we were watching showed like a, a creek that was almost identical to the creek where the boys were found. It was. Yeah, they do their hunt because of the way they hunt, where they're just kind of staying still. They actually will swim to, they said, very shallow, slow-moving tributaries, um, small creeks, to do their hunting. That's where they stay. They won't be in the bigger or more rapidly flowing water. And then also we found out that during the day they hunt with their mouth open with the little wiggly worm thing on their tongue, but at night they scavenge. Uh, and that's an, and if you look up YouTube videos about this, you'll see there's, there's people that hunt these alligator snapping turtles and they get them by trapping them by scent. They put these hoop traps up with a stinky rotting bait of some kind in the back of it. And the turtles swim through the hoops and get trapped in the in the net, and so everything you know adds up to alligator snapping turtles would be in those waters and would feed on uh, a dead body in the water because they do again at night they actually move and hunt that way and and will actually travel and scavenge whereas during the daytime is when they sit still and let uh, their prey come to them 
And I think that's all we've got right now. I'm getting dirty looks from Mike, uh, who wants to get to his five pages of notes. So that'll be enough for the medical evidence and the turtles and David Jacoby for now. So go ahead. All right. Our first question comes from Audra. She writes, my big question is, what the heck does the term unsub mean? Never heard it before. Oh, yeah, there was a, a lot of people have added it to their vocabulary after this episode. I noticed that. Yeah, because I said it a hundred times. So unsub uh, just means unidentified subject. It's, uh, and, that's, and that's the term that the FBI uses. They'll call whoever the, the profile is indicating an unidentified subject because it's not pointed at a particular suspect. It's pointed at any someone that fits that type of profile, otherwise known as an unsub. So it's sort of a general term. Yeah. Thanks for clearing that one up, Bob. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Casey writes, in Bob's hypothesis, he mentioned the water was, quote, deep and flowing rapidly. Would this still allow for the unsub to be in the water himself? while concealing the bodies and the boys' clothes not float downstream in the initial attempt. So when I talked about the water being deep and flowing rapidly, I was talking about the main bayou, uh, not the small creek that the, the bodies were found in. Now, there was the, the water was flowing uh, in the creek where they were found, but it wasn't, I, I think it was in one of the reports where it says it was flowing at maybe like four gallons a minute or something like that. That state doesn't seem like enough. Four gallons a second, maybe. But anyway, it wasn't moving all that fast. They were able to keep up with it with a trash pump to, uh, to keep it from refilling when they, when they sandbagged it. Uh, but the main bayou is what was flowing uh, extremely rapidly. The water was really high, almost up to the bottom of the pipe. And actually, I guess, you know, cat's out of the bag. The person that I talked to that saw the muddy footprints was, in fact, David Jacoby. And I asked him about that because there's some people doing some work and discussing the levels of the water that maybe they had, it played a part. Uh, and so I just asked him, where were the water levels in the pipe? And he said, man, it looked like it was maybe, you know, within two feet of the bottom of the pipe and it was flowing hard, you know, where, to the extent where uh, he said, if you try to, you know, take a, a boat wouldn't make it under it. A small boat even wouldn't make it under it, he said, which is about the same place it was still in the next day when they actually found the, the bikes in the water. But in any case, no, the water I was talking about was the bayou, not the creek. All right, and Jennifer says, were there bruises or marks on the boys that indicated they were held in the water and drowned? Uh, there really doesn't seem to be. There's some bruising on, I think it was Chris Byers, on, on kind of the inner thigh a little bit. A kind of a weird grid pattern. But no, there wasn't, there wasn't much bruising. Nancy asks, how long would it take to subdue the kids, submerge them, pull them back out, and strip and tie them? I mean, I don't have an exact answer for that, but... Less time, I would say less time than people think, mm -hmm. because a couple of people have said, like, there's just not enough time for all this. Well, it's happening fast. So, you know, once once the act has been committed, once the murder's done, you have three dead children there. 
and you're moving quick to get that, you know, as, as quick as you can to get that the, the crime scene cleaned up and get out of there. And honestly, I think someone could do it in probably 15 minutes. Just just getting the boys in the water, I bet less than 10 minutes easily for sure. Uh, it could happen if they were focused on getting it done. I mean, for example, my seven-year-old, you know, getting him dressed for ready for school in the morning. You know, like how long does that really take to, you know, get the pajamas off, get on, get on his, you know, his his other clothes, tie his shoes up for him, you know, and then move him over to get him ready for school. Two minutes takes about two minutes to do the whole thing. So I don't know. I I, I guess I don't have an exact answer for you, but I don't think it's as long as people think that it is. Um, I think the entire thing could be done in probably less than a half hour. And then what about, say, the killer leaving the scene, cleaning up, and going back into the general public? How long do you think that might take somebody? Well, it depends on where the unsub lived um, and you know, what he had access to. So it's, it's hard to say, but say somewhere in the neighborhood, I mean, you could pretty much drive to anywhere in that neighborhood within five minutes, probably back to the entrance of the woods where I think people were probably parking and going in. They're over by Devil's Den. Maybe the walk there, maybe five to ten, another five, say twenty minutes tops to get back to a house somewhere, and then I think it's just you know as it's, it's quick as it takes you to change clothes and then get right back out. So yeah, I would say I don't know half hour. All right, Kara writes. After today's episode, I was thinking more about Michael getting away. How do you think, if at all, this is related to him having a random string tying him up? I believe one of the strings was not a shoestring, right? No, we did find out that it was, in fact, a shoestring, and you know, there was some question because, you know, there's, there's six different bindings, you know, two on each boy, and there was only five shoelaces used because one of Christopher Byers' shoes still had the lace in it. Um, but after a, a little further review, it's, it's, it's hard to, you know, get a hold of some of the, you know, pictures and things and crime scene photos, uh, but it was, we did find out that it was described at trial, uh, and then I actually finally now have seen some of the pictures. It looks to me like the bindings on Michael Moore were one shoelace cut in half. So there is a variation with his bindings from the other two. Because both of the bindings, one on each side, has the aglet, I think people said they're called, the, the plastic thing on the end, and then and then a cut end on the other end of the shoelace. So it looked like if you could put those two together, you'd have one lace. So there wasn't a, a random string. It was just a cut shoelace. Christina says, do we know if the muddy footprints that the witness saw on the pipe bridge were in the direction going into the woods or coming out? No. So they were just described as just you could see there was one set of prints on there and and didn't get close enough to really look at, a you know, there was no tread pattern. Um, he was asked even by you know, John Douglas and myself, you know, could you tell how big they were? Was it an adult or a child? And he said they were they were pretty big. But at the same time. You see, you know, as you're walking in, in, in mud's caking onto your shoes, your kind of foot's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So he didn't know one way or the other. And all he knew is that there was one sole set going across the pipe, doesn't know which direction, didn't look at the tread, and doesn't really know if it was an adult or a child. Keep in mind, it was, it was almost dark right then, so his plan was to go around to the uh, drive around to the other side to try to pick up tracks on the other side, which he eventually did do. And the police didn't know about the tracks? <laughs> well, they did. And gosh, I'm really... I might as well just play David Jacoby's interview at some point. But so far, he's just so far ahead of where we're at now. But no, he said that he actually did tell a police officer that when he came out of down from the pipe bridge, when he came out up right up there by Mayfair Apartments, there was a cop there in a car with several people around talking, including John Mark Byers. So I, I'm assuming this is Regina Meek. I don't know if there was another officer right about that time, right around 830, 845, that had gone down there. 
but we know that that's about the time that Regina Meek went down there. Uh, but anyway, he said that he went and stood outside the car, and he could. See, he said he didn't even know if it was a male or a female. He could just see in the, the cop car the hands of the officer with a notepad, and he was standing there telling them, look, there's bike tracks back there, and they go down by the pipe, and they stop, and then there's foot tracks across the pipe. And never really got much of a response, and then he went to go put on a warmer coat, get some flashlights to come back, and then never saw the cop again. But so according to him, at least one officer was made aware of the footprints on the pipe. All right, and Debbie writes, Does the amount of water in the lungs or other post-mortem evidence of drowning vary if you are drowned while unconscious versus being conscious when the drowning occurred? Do we know how much water was in the lungs? Is this something that is standard in an autopsy if the cause of death is drowning? No, I don't, well, I don't think so. I mean, basically, your entire lungs are going to fill with water. Uh, but then as you're pulled out of the water, depending on how you're laid on the banks and everything, like I mean, the water is going to come out, you know, based on gravity. It's also going to absorb. You know, your body absorbs things through your bronchial, through, the, through your lungs. So, yeah, there's, there's no certain amount. But that's also why Dr. Spitz described why people were confused looking at the pictures of the autopsy of Stevie Branch. And there's blood everywhere. And they said, oh, those must be fresh wounds. There's blood all over his face. And he said, "No, that's not what that is. It's the um, it's the is the water uh, hits all those tiny little capillaries inside the lungs. They actually explode and rupture during as a process of drowning, and it creates this, this bloody, frothy uh, water. And it actually creates pressure as it as it bubbles up uh, because of that process. And then it, and then it will come back out of the mouth, and then you know, or any orifice that it can get out of." And then ends up, you know, running down his face. So that was the blood that was all over everything. It was just the, the water, blood, frothy mix from in the lungs coming out. Lori says, if the boys were only drowned, why did the luminol test show presence of blood on the bank? Okay, well, there's a couple things. This is another one that's, uh, you got to kind of jump ahead a little bit. And I hadn't really gotten into it, but they didn't do any luminol tests, of course, that day when they were on the crime scene. It was, gosh, I want to say... The day of the arrest, which was a month later, definitely weeks later. No, a month later is when they went back and found the hair. So, But it was a while later. Police went back and set up tents with luminol to look for signs of blood on the banks. And they found something that reacted with the luminol in certain areas. But you understand that they took the boys' bodies and set them on the banks. And remember that process that I just described to you of the water and the, and the frothy sputum coming out of their mouths uh, as they're laying there. And also keep in mind, luminol doesn't test for blood. Luminol tests for bodily fluids. It's testing for any really organic bodily fluids of human or animal of any kind. I believe even urine will react to luminol. Feces, semen, blood, anything uh, will react to luminol. So they go back like, uh, gosh, I wish I remembered the exact amount of days, but it was a while after the fact uh, on the bank where the dead bodies were laid out for hours and sprayed luminol and found there was some reaction of some kind of substance there. There's also been animals in and out of there. There's So it's, the luminol conclusions were just really, there weren't any conclusions. They were inconclusive. A week later to find out that something reacted in the place where there were dead bodies, it's too little too late at that point. All right, and Stacy says, so how did the unsub locate the boys? Have you interviewed Bobby Posey and Carlos Seals? I would be interested to hear if they told anyone where the boys were. I don't know how the unsub located the boys, and no, I haven't. I've been I've written a couple of letters actually to Bobby Posey, trying to get some information from him. I haven't heard back from him. I've been working on trying to reach out to Carlos Seals too, 
I do have a little more information, but it's not vetted yet, so I, I got to kind of hold that back until I can confirm some things. And while we're on the topic of Bobby Posey, I did, I don't know if this is in your questions, Mike, but a few people were asking me, is Bobby Posey's brother's real name really Robert? And you remember, it, it is. Yeah, it was really kind of a unique situation. It's kind of like a George Foreman situation. Because yeah. I think there was a third one, too, that was something, a, a Roberta or something. I think so, yeah. But uh, yeah, so Bobby Lee Posey's older brother's name is Robert Lee Posey. And, you know, in our interview, I joked with him and said, well, your, your parents must not have had much of an imagination because they, it, it, Bobby is not short for Robert. His name is Bobby. Um, and I think the father obviously was a Robert Posey. And I think there's also a Roberta Posey in there somewhere. Could be wrong about that. But yes, they are brothers. And yes, they have almost an identical name. But anyway, getting back to um, how the unsub found the boys, we have no idea. I mean, someone... And that's why I think that, you know, there's a lot of people that are, that are not too confident in what we're doing. But I believe as we track this further and we reach out further and try to get out, find the people that know something, that we can find the person somehow, yeah, the unsub knew they were back there. So either he was driving around looking and saw them go into the woods, which I find doubtful because where they went into the woods, number one, that was witnessed. Number two, it was a ways away from the pipe. And I think that the unsub would have, if he saw them go in and he went after them right away, he would have caught them way back on the south side of the bayou. So I think that, yeah, likely someone's like, oh, I saw him up there. Or I saw him this way. And hopefully we can find that person and figure out, you know, who knew where they were before 630. You know, because after, you know, after 830, everybody's up there looking in that area. But um, who knew they were there right when they got into the woods? That's what, we, that's what I'd like to know. This one from Nicole says, could this person and she's talking about the unsub, just be a seasoned criminal or abuser that has been caught before and therefore can think quicker under pressure rather than a trained EMT, military, etc., like what you gave in your profile. Yeah, I think there, I mean, there's, there's a lot of different things that could cause somebody to be able to do that. You know, that's, and that's what I was saying. It could be something like, to me, my, my immediate thought was like, yeah, like ex-military or police, somebody that is calm under pressure. But there's a lot of different circumstances that could cause it. Like I said, it could be just, you know, just surviving an abused childhood, just criminally experienced like that. Yeah. I mean, it, it could be, it could be anything. And basically I'm, I'm just saying that when a profile is delivered, the, the intent is hopefully someone who listens to it will know like, Hey, you're describing so-and-so. I think that might be him. We're describing someone who's just, when bad things are happening, they're not panicking. They're just calm for whatever reason. That's their personality. Chrissy says, I miss this, but what plays into profiling the unsub to be in his 30s? Because he owns a home in the neighborhood and is an authority figure to eight-year-olds? Also, why specifically are the actions to conceal the crime considered criminally sophisticated? It seems very logical, but is it the fact that logic is applied in the stressful situation? Okay, so first of all, the age um, and the two, the two questions there kind of running together. The level of criminal sophistication, it, basically the whole profile points to maturity, in, in my opinion. So, so my opinion of the profile points to someone who is, who is mature uh, because, you know, like I said, they, they've had some life experience, the calmness under pressure, the ability to execute a plan under pressure, uh, the fact that they, right, that they are likely an authority figure to the children. The fact that they, you know, having a house in a neighborhood doesn't necessarily mean more mature because it could be, you know, a kid living with a, someone in a house. But seems to me like this is someone who got to go into an empty house that night. Uh, but so all of these actions just don't, you know, what, what we see 
when you study other cases like this, other homicide cases like this, which you know I've studied a lot, but not an incredible amount, as a put compared to the the criminal behavior analysis unit at the FBI, you know, where they've studied literally thousands, it's a, you see in the in in young teenage offenders much more disorganized actions. You know, they're 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 not paying attention to detail. They're not doing a good job of concealing the crime scene. They're they're panicking and they're leaving, and that's not what we see in this scene. So it kind of indicates based on some of that. And everything else together that you're looking at somebody, I think, that is is someone with some amount of maturity. Uh, and as far as the specifically the criminal sophistication you asked about, I mean, it's you look at the scene, and I've had people, FBI profilers actually I've talked to about this case, say, well, you know, they, they didn't do a good job. They did a shitty job because the the bodies were found 18 hours later. You know, that's not a very good job. But what I'm looking at is... Look at the circumstances. Look at the geography. Okay, uh, if we're talking about, if I'm right, and this was an unplanned murder, and it, it happens, killer snaps, kills the three boys, which I think he would probably have snapped and killed one and then methodically killed the other two, or um, consciously you know, planned to do it in order to cover up whatever happened with the first one. But however that happened, so he knows immediately he's got to cover this crime scene up. He has to conceal it. Well, look at what he has. He, he's not in a position where he can like, okay, well, let me go get a shovel and I'm going to come back and bury the bodies. He can't do that in this circumstance because of the geography uh, and the timing and the and the, the time of day and, and the fact that it's daylight, all these things. And there's people out looking and well, and, and I can't haul the boy. I can't haul three dead bodies out of here in broad daylight. Where am I going to take them into the blue beacon truck wash out to the highway or across a pipe bridge into the neighborhood? None of those are options to, to move the boys. So here I am. I'm in this tiny little patch of woods. I'm in this, and there's this tiny little ditch bank. And the only thing that I can do to hide this is to get everything off and into the water. Um, and so if you look at the scenario and, and you take, like, say, us now, after the fact, look at the elements. You're standing there with three dead bodies in that exact situation and think about developing your mind what would be the best possible plan to conceal the crime scene and try to think of one better than what our unsub did. And and I would maintain there really isn't one. You know, there's not a lot of other options there to conceal the scene, including the bikes and everything. So I think that it's incredibly sophisticated that he was able to accomplish what he did in the short period of time, in the geographic and time constraints that he was under in that circumstance. And therefore that's why I say in my opinion, there was criminal sophistication. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. I want to ask you too, Bob, a lot of people have asked, 
If you believe that the boys were not unconscious, then how do you think one person could kill all three? That's a good question. The problem with this is, and that's if you notice in the profile, I didn't get into too much specifics about how they were drowned, because I don't know if they were hit over the head and then drowned, or if they were hit over the head while they were being drowned. I just, I feel like whatever it was, it wasn't planned, and it ended in drowning. Really, at this point, and I, I hate to even say it, because I know it, it upsets people, and it, and it causes arguments, and I don't want to do that, but I'm really leaning towards Spitz. The deeper and deeper I dig, you know, he's the one that has the best explanation for everything, not just saying there's hemorrhage, so it's pre-mortem. You know, he's digging deeper and saying not enough hemorrhage, the gravity shifting, all that. But anyway, my theory has always, and all of you guys know that, my theory has always been that since we started looking at the crime scene, that they were hit over the head quickly, rendered unconscious, and then put in the water where they drowned. Well, Spitz's testimony throws a whole new kink into that because he's saying they weren't hitting the head, that that happened post-mortem. So you got three conscious boys being drowned in the water. How does it happen with one guy? Um, and is it possible? And my answer is, I don't know exactly how it went down, but I do absolutely believe that it's possible. I, I know that it's possible uh, for one grown man to control three eight-year-old boys. And, and you have to realize that likely we're not talking about a systematic, you know, it's not, hang on, you two stand there while I drown this boy. Now that's done. Now, come here, you here, you keep standing there while I drown this boy. I don't think it happened like that. I think very easily a grown man, if you know, with three boys close to each other, could just grab literally all three at once and pin them down under the water, tackle them into the water very quickly. Or even if you imagine just grabbing collars, you know, if they try to run away and you're boom, 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 you grab grab their collars and hold them together and and shove them under the water. There's a million ways. You know, I used to wrestle with my my son and my nephews together. Where literally three of them would would that was the game was they would wrestle with me. And I would always end up wrapping up all three of them and pinning them down underneath me at the same time. Uh, it's easily done. But then, you know, people say, well, at least one of them would run away. And somebody brought up the, the fight or flight response. You know, they're going to they're gonna fight or they're going to fly. Well, there's a piece missing to that. And actually, it's a limbic system response. It's almost a prehistoric response in our brains, in the limbic center of our brains. And it's not fight or flight, as most people will say. The response is actually freeze, fight, or flight. The first thing your body does in a moment of panic is to freeze. And oftentimes, they'll stay in that frozen state uh, where you're not going to move before you decide whether to go this direction and fight or go this direction and, and run away. So there's that freezing element uh, to that scenario as well in a high-stress situation like that. So literally, someone could just stand there. Or you know, if they're holding one under the water, don't you run away or, you know, or, or I'm going to do this to you too. You know, it, it doesn't take much to manipulate an 8-year-old. But again, I also think that it could all happen very quickly all at once, and it would be easy for one grown man to grab three 60-pound 8-year-olds all at the same time and pin them under the water all at the same time. Ruth says, I don't understand why the perp would go to so much effort to hide the bodies. They were concealed in such a crude way that they were always going to be found and very soon after the disappearance. So why bother hiding them? What would be the benefit? The benefit is to buy some time for the killer. Like, like we'd mentioned in the profile, you know, he... I think, again, a known personal relationship. He was expected to be, I believe, with the boys, or at least one of the boys that night. People would think of him as a suspect if they were found right then. So it was, and also, he had just gone into the area where, where they died, you know, where he just killed them. And so it, it's, and it's, and it's extremely common in cases like this. That's why we say a known personal relationship, because 
in most cases where you have someone in that situation with a known relationship to the victim, they will try to conceal the bodies. They try to, and, and the difference is if you have that known personal relationship and you are expected to be with somebody at a certain time and at that time they go missing and are killed, you're going to be the suspect. And that's why what, what that person needs is for the body not to be found, you know, if possible. You know, and we saw that in our season one case, you know, take bury the body somewhere because as soon as that body's found, people are going to know she was supposed to be with me that day. And so that's why you, you see the concealment. Now, in this case, again, like I mentioned a minute ago, yeah, eventually the bodies are going to be discovered. But right now, I just need them not to be discovered right now. I need to get out, and I'm, I'm speaking as the unsub, I need to get out of these woods, I need to get into some clean clothes, and I need to be out there looking for these kids. I need to be one of the per- people, so when, when their bodies are found and they're trying to figure out who did it, people remember that I was one of the people that was there helping search the night that they went missing. So that's why, that's why they, the concealment was. It's definitely not going to be permanent concealment, uh, but it, it's, it's long enough concealment. And it, like I said, it, it bought him 18 hours. Imagine if the first people to search over in those woods found the bodies, you know, which was, you know, I think Ryan Clark and his buddies actually crossed the pipe, you know, somewhere around 10 o'clock, 30, 10 o'clock at night and went over there. If they had come up over that hill and the boys were just laying there instead of being concealed in the water, then very quickly, okay, now we have an exact window of time. We know where they were seen here. And we know they're gone here, so who was in this area? They start canvassing. Uh, much more likely for the killer to be caught. Plus, any forensic evidence would still be on the bodies as opposed to what would be washed away under the water. Okay, and Gemma says, how do we know the bikes weren't tossed in first? If this person was in a rage, tossing the bikes only serves to increase their advantage over the boys. They could have been. That would be an indicator. If the bikes were thrown in first, it would be an indicator of premeditation. So if, if the uns- meaning if the unsub say they're following the tracks, and they get to the pipe, and they, they realize they went across the pipe, and they decide then, I'm going to kill them. Then they throw the bikes into the water. It's possible. It's, it's definitely, and it's, it's not even improbable. It certainly could be what happened. But to me, personally, the crime scene to me looks more like an unplanned attack, and then the bikes were an afterthought, along with the clothing and everything else as part of the concealment of the crime. Beth writes, you say in episode 511 that the victim's legs were tied behind them but you made it clear in the beginning that they were actually tied in front. Could we get some clarification? No, so they were tied behind them. Um, and I don't know what you mean by, she means by beginning. I, I think she meant the beginning of the investigation as in an earlier episode. Okay, yeah. So and what I was saying there was, uh, right from the beginning, as soon as I knew, saw how these boys were bound, which it was right wrist to right ankle, left wrist to right ankle, and it was behind their back. You know, their knees were bent a little bit to, to bridge the gap there. So it was kind of behind their back. And what I was saying in the earlier episode was that's not a way to restrain a person who's alive. It, it won't restrain you because without a crisscross, which is right to right and left to left, you can easily swing your hand around to the front and untie the knots. You know, you can take both hands and swing them right back around and, and untie yourself uh, in that method. So they can be taken to the front, but they were tied more towards the back. And to be honest, I don't think that in this case, because I do believe they were postmortem. Uh, despite some of the arguments out there, I, I I do believe that they were just it was just make it smaller. I don't think the killer cared if it was front or back. You know, knees go up in the front or feet go up in the back. Either way, that legs bending doesn't matter. They're just trying to create that smaller package and give them something to help pin them to the bottom. 
All right, Brad says, in light of Robert Posey's statement, can we clarify what his exact route was through the woods? Also, when he says he didn't encounter anyone there, is he talking specifically about the culvert or about the woods in their entirety? Since his information seems to contradict other people that said there was activity in the Robin Hood woods, I'm wondering if there might be some confusion going on about the area on the other side of the pipe bridge, the area by the service road, and the area by Mayfair Apartments. We're talking about the same patch of woods, okay, the the area where the, the discovery site, the Blue Beacon Woods, the Turtle Hill Woods, the woods north of the bayou and to the east of the Blue Beacon truck wash. So, uh, but, but the thing was, his route was, the way he described it to me was he'd, he, you know, he'd leave the apartments, he would cr- walk across the pipe, and then there was a path that led up to the Blue Beacon. Well, the woods, the discovery site would be another maybe 50 feet to the east from there, uh, to the, or to the right if you're walking north. And, and so he didn't walk over that. Matter of fact, I, I'm trying to remember, I don't think he even remember, he knew there was a creek in there. No, I don't think so. When we asked him, because he, he never went to that side of the woods, because the path was more on the left or the west side of the woods uh, that he would take up to the Blue Beacon. So he didn't go wandering through the woods or anything. He just followed the path that went from the pipe bridge up to the Blue Beacon. Uh, and he said, and, and when he was doing that, he just never came across. He never saw anybody else crossing the pipe, never saw anybody else in the woods. But, you know, there's, there's, it's not a big woods, it's a tiny little woods, but there are parts of those woods that wouldn't be visible during that walk. Aaron wants to know, will a future episode get into more detail about Stephen Christopher's home lives and relationships with their fathers, or discuss any further corroborated information about Michael's home life? It seems like that would be a part of their victimology and help us identify their risk factors. Yeah, we'll get into that more in future episodes. Um, like I said, we kind of we're at the point right now where we're kind of hitting pause on that investigation and kind of getting into uh, what actually happened, what the direction the, the West Memphis police actually went. Uh, in fact, this week, you know, and I know I, I rambled on a lot in this episode, Mike, so hopefully people will be happy about uh, this week's main episode where they're not going to hear from me hardly at all. Because this week, like I said, we're hitting pause on kind of our investigation and where we would go. And, and we're going to backtrack and talk about where the West Memphis Police Department did go, and we'll, and we'll be evaluating that. As we do with any potential wrongful conviction, we always look at, was the initial investigation flawed? What was flawed about it? And in, as I always say, if someone's wrongfully convicted, you should be able to identify how that happened. Uh, and so we're going to assess all that stuff. But this week, this Sunday, we're going to begin that process in episode 512, just two days from now, by addressing and explaining the state's theory of the motive for the crime. Uh, and we're going to be doing that by letting you hear quite a bit of audio from the trial and very little from me this week. So, and that's an attempt to you know, remain unbiased and not interject my own opinion on it. I want you guys to hear it all uh, and assess that part for yourself before we move on any further. So, and I think, Mike, unless you've got a whole lot more, we're, <laughs> we're coming up on an hour now, so uh, it's probably about time to pull the plug unless you've got more over there. No, actually, that was all I had, Bob. Okay, well, then we'll go ahead and wrap things up now. Thanks, everybody, for all your participation in the Friday follow-up. Sorry if I came across as a little crass at the beginning of the episode. I, don't, I didn't mean to be, but like I said, that's just something uh, that it's just, situation with David Jacoby is it's just something really, it means a lot to me. It's important to me, and I wanted to make sure that that got addressed. So uh, hopefully you all look forward to Sunday's episode, and we'll talk about more about the still continuing on our search for the medical evidence, and as well as the new information that will be presented on Sunday and next week's Friday follow-up. We'll talk to you all next week.
Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Bussing is our executive producer, and all music for the show is created by Shane Yoder with PutThemInASong.com. Our Friday follow-up logo was created by Amanda Meyer. We want to thank Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, managing, and maintaining our website, as well as our transcription team, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, Stephanie McConnell, and Sarah Mueller. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending us in emails, tweets, Facebook messages, however you want to keep in touch with us. Don't forget about our voicemail line at 269-224-2833, which you can reach us 24 hours a day, seven days a week. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. But if you then, Mike, you're kind of snoring into the microphone. <laughs> it's embarrassing, huh? Riveting what I'm talking about. <laughs> you were literally snoring into the microphone. Dude, it gets hard. You fell asleep. It's like it's like it's like sitting through like college chemistry again or something. It's it gets tricky. Anyway, I mean, really. All right, our first. That's fucking annoying, isn't it? I was literally snoring. But I, I mean, it was just like because, and it's stuff that I've been over with you. You know, it's different. Times. It's a fresh, fresh listen. But anyway, yeah. Sorry, I'm sorry. I didn't mean. I mean, it was kind of insulting. <laughs> this is this is my job. This is <laughs> never been more upset with you. <laughs> not, not because you fell asleep, but because I thought what I was saying was so interesting. <laughs> You're sitting three feet away from me, sleeping, <laughs> with headphones on. Oh, man. I, I apologize, sir. <laughs> Damn. So look up YouTube Snapping Turtles Jumping. It's it's scary as hell. Scary as hell. <laughs> we should have done this hours ago. Yeah. I'm, sorry, I'm a little getting a little off topic. I'm running, rambling on. But anyway, the South, uh, in, in kind of the Southeast... <laughs> What? You're all right. I'm all right. Yeah, the fish come in and try to eat the worm, and then the... I don't believe you, Bob <laughs> Ruff. <laughs> Look it up, so You watch the video. <laughs> Some days these things implode, don't they? Yeah, it's happening right now. We haven't even got to one of your questions yet. I have five pages. 21 minutes in. <laughs> Let me finish the shit about the turtles. What are you doing? Waiting for you. You were reading something. I'm always reading something. And this is Ben's... What's the show called? I don't remember. (laughs) Truth and Justice.